Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Max Barrick. And I'm Amit Bindra. And with us today is a very exciting guest. Today we are speaking with Megan O'Malley. Megan is a principal and founding mother, member, excuse me, my God, of O'Malley and Madden, where she concentrates her practice in areas of civil rights and employment law. Megan has litigated hundreds of claims on behalf of, on behalf of victims of discrimination, harassment, and retaliation. She has also represented numerous whistleblowers, which is a topic we're going to cover. In addition to her litigation practice, Megan counsels employees through career transitions and helps review and negotiate employment contracts and restrictive covenants. Megan is also instrumental in improving the judiciary and works with Courts Matter to advocate for a fair, diverse, and fully staffed federal judiciary, which we're going to cover on another show with Megan. Um, Megan is a past president of NILA, Illinois, and the chair of the Chicago Bar Association's Labor and Employment Committee. Past Megan Gray, chair. Past chair, excuse me, which is actually, <laughs> believe it or not, how I knew you existed, Megan, because I went to a CBA CLE one time that I think you and Kate today were presenting at. So that was how oh, okay. I, nice. when I was when I was trying to meet people in NILA, Illinois, and just figure out who the hell worked here. You two were two of the first people I came across that way. Before she got to this point in her career, Megan graduated from the University of California at Santa Barbara and received her GAD from DePaul University College of Law. Megan, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have another DePaul grad on. We have so many Kent people that were Yay. getting numbered. Go DePaul. We've got the Chicago Kent Labor and Employment Mafia. Uh, run, by Rich, <laughs> run by Rich Gonzalez at all. So exactly. So let's just kind of get into it. You recently had a nice trial victory in the age of COVID. Tell us a little bit about your recent $1.1 million jury verdict against the city of Chicago. Is that right? It was against the city of Chicago. It was a police whistleblower case that was originally tried by my co-counsel, Tori Hamilton of Hamilton Law Office. She and her colleagues tried the case in the summer of 18 on be 2018 on behalf of Lorenzo Davis against the city. And Mr. Davis actually himself was a Chicago police officer for 23 years, started out as a patrol officer and rose to the ranks of a commander when he retired from the police department. And then if you guys remember in Chicago history at all that the Police misconduct complaints used to be reviewed internally by the Office of Professional Standards. And in, at some point, they decided to take that external and make an independent agency that was called IPRA, the Independent Police Review Authority. And so when that became independent of the police department, the goal of which is to have some independence to make sure that cops weren't policing. Mr. Davis, who had retired from the police force a few years earlier, decided to apply for that position as an investigator with IPRA. And I think, you know, he figured he was very well suited, which he was because he had worked for the police department and had had that empathy of, you know, it's a hard job being a cop on the streets. You do have to make judgment calls and split split second decisions. And so he knew that he would have the empathy of having served as a police officer for decades of his life. But he also knew that he loved the police department enough that he wanted the police department to live up to its ideals and to serve and protect and to deal with the errant officers, which do exist on any force, especially one with 
12 to 13,000 officers. It's just a fact of life. And so he applied for that job and started working at the IPRA as an investigator and everything was going really well until 2014 when a new uh, chief came in. And what Mr. Davis and his team would do is they would investigate complaints of police misconduct and IPRA would actually investigate some of the most serious complaints. Some of them were still handled internally with the internal affairs department within the police department, but the more serious ones, including excessive force and police shootings would go to IPRA. And so prior to the new chief coming in, he would you know, make his findings after doing extensive investigations, which included interviewing witnesses, looking at reports, sometimes medical records, sometimes even talking to the medical doctors, interviewing the complainants and interviewing the officers who were complained of. You know, he testified that he would make, he would often find, you know, the, the officers exonerated. And he explained that as a police officer, he gets that a lot of the complaints made by citizens really don't have validity. And sometimes that people make complaints, you know, to try to get the cops off their back and things like that. They're just, they're not all valid, but that he, he said he found about 10% or so of complaints he would actually sustain and find that the police officers did in fact engage in misconduct or excessive force or it was an unjustified shooting. And that in 2014, when this new chief came in, all of a sudden he started to get all kinds of pushback on these sustained findings for the first time. And this chief was basically not interested in IPRA being an independent entity at all or making findings based on the evidence. And rather this chief really was interested in rubber stamping the police action and saying that no, our officers do no wrong. And he would actually start instructing Mr. Davis to change these sustained findings. And he would, you know, even when faced with video evidence, he would tell Mr. Davis, I don't care. I want you to change this finding from sustained to exonerated or unfounded, essentially to clear the officer of any wrongdoing. And Lorenzo Davis said, no, I'm not not doing that. I will not change these findings. This is based on the evidence. And so he was fired the chief fired him for insubordination and the insubordination was literally refusing to cover up police misconduct. So it's pretty outrageous and egregious that he was fired for his refusal to cover up police misconduct. Well, and, and this, you know, you said a lot, I mean, that was really good background for us, but I mean, I think it's important and it also touches on a lot of different issues, right? So there's what we as attorneys, employment attorneys, right? Representing individuals see and deal with a lot, which is whistleblowers being silenced. But this is not a, a two things that jump out to me. Number one, all the the fears and I guess issues about police misconduct and police reform that we've heard about that, you know, police can't be allowed to, re, you know, police themselves or there are, you know, these are not a few bad apples or these are systemic issues. You've got this independent review that's there to review civilian complaints flat out being told you need to make these go away. You need to just rubber stamp them, fudge it where you need to and it really does validate or I guess affirm a lot of citizen fears about this. But the other being how blatant the retaliatory behavior is here. Because usually when we deal with these private employers, at least in my practice, it's rare that I get anybody who's flat out telling you they're firing you for blowing the whistle or refusing. Usually there's some pretext, you know, which is I guess the legal term for a BS justification for something. But that's not even present here. They're just flat out firing him for that. 
Yeah, that's exactly right, Max. And, you know, of course, they defended themselves saying, well, you know, we had legitimate reasons to ask you to change these findings, and we, you can't refuse to, you know, an order from your supervisor and the way in which you went about this and et cetera, et cetera. But it was pretty blatant that, I mean, he was fired for not changing findings. And what he explained to the jury was, they didn't do new, and there wasn't new evidence that emerged that they'd say, hey, we want you to change this finding because we found out X, Y, or Z. This was just, we don't like your, your finding of sustained. We don't like that you found this officer committed misconduct or that this shooting was unjustified. Even though it's on video that, you know, he's shot a, an unarmed person running away from him, we just, we just don't want you to find that that shooting was unjustified. We want you to change it. And so it, it is unusual that they didn't come up with a better BS excuse, right? And I think that's why that's why he got such a significant jury verdict in the first case. Uh, the jury came back and awarded two uh, $2.8 million. About 800000 of that was lost wages and benefits. And the other, it was about $2.1 million in emotional distress. The city actually uh, didn't appeal the liability verdict, but they did appeal the emotional distress award. And the appellate court actually remitted the award all the way down to $100,000. And they gave Mr. Davis the option. And of course, that's quite a cut, right? <laughs> you had $2 million award to 100 grand. And they gave Mr. Davis the option of rejecting their suggestion that based on the evidence at the first trial, they thought the more appropriate award would be 100 grand. Or and they said, if you don't, and if you don't agree, you can retry the case. We'll remand it for a trial on the issue of emotional distress damages alone. And that's what we just tried earlier this month in the beginning of June to a Cook County jury. And it was only the third jury trial since COVID had shut down the courts altogether. So we did put on evidence of Mr. Davis's emotional distress, you know, having been fired in his 60s after having given 37 years of public service to the city of Chicago. He actually began as a Chicago public school teacher, and then he went to be a Chicago police officer, and then an investigator who was trying to merely protect the public this time from, you know, those errant cops, and he was fired for it and kicked to the curb after all of this exceptional service. So the jury um, did award $1.1 million in this trial and really vindicated that, yes, he endured a lot having gone through that. And so we were very pleased with the jury's verdict. So a couple, couple of follow-up questions for you. First, what was the reason the appellate court remanded and said, so, so Megan, as a backdrop, we're hoping to have non-lawyer listeners that we don't really have a good sense yet at our stage in the podcast as we record this in June 2021, who our listenership is. But we're in theory trying to ex, you know, make this somewhat accessible to folks. So can you talk a little bit about why the appellate court remanded and said that the trial court got it wrong on the emotional damages part? I think, yeah, sure. The appellate court... Um, I think was looking for more specific evidence to emotional distress, as opposed to, you know, as you guys know, and, and this maybe doesn't help with the lay listener, but, you know, we, we're allowed to make inferences. The jury's allowed to make inferences based on the evidence. And I think sometimes as lawyers, we get so caught up in the liability aspect of the case and look what they did to him. It was so wrong. It was so unjust. And, and actually, you know, especially when you're a police officer and when you're somebody who is investigating police misconduct, justice is something that's super important to you. And when injustice happens to you, and when it happens to you because you were in fact trying to seek justice for the citizens of Chicago, that is super harmful. And that is super invalidating. And I think that there was a lot of inferential, the jury got it the first time. And so there was a lot of inferential evidence that they understood that, of course, this would be devastating after 
serving this city for so long. And so, but the appellate court said, well, but you didn't talk as much as we'd like to see on the specific aspect of how was it devastating? Let's hear more about that. And so on that first trial's record, they were just saying that we don't think that there was enough evidence of how it was devastating to you. And so, like I said, they said, if you wanna stand on the first record, you can take the $100,000, but if you wanna retry the case and sort of better explain to the jury and to us, like how it affected you and emotionally, then we'll, let you, we'll give you the opportunity to do that. So in the second trial, we called more witnesses on emotional distress and really develop that evidence a little bit more to ask our client to explain specifically to the jury rather than to a lot rely on what we think is a permissible you know, inference of the circumstantial evidence, but to really um, explain it better that how this affected him. And so that's what they were looking for and that's what we gave them and that's what the jury decided again. And so hopefully that will not be appealed this time, but we'll leave that to the city. <laughs> so you had him, you had Mr. Davis testify who also then testified in support of his emotional damages? So we had three of his colleagues who were on his team who also experienced this pressure to change these findings and who watched you know, him experience this retaliation and understood what it, would, what it was like for him to be, I mean, he was physically escorted out of the building on the day that he was fired, as if he were the person that the citizens of Chicago needed protecting from. And, you know, that was pretty demeaning to this gentleman in his 60s who had served the public for so long. And so we had these colleagues of his testify about his love and enjoyment of his job, and what a great leader he was, how he inspired all of them, and how he just how devastating this was. And, you know, one of the witnesses talked about how she had seen him since then, and he just wasn't the same. And this just seemed to take so much from him and things like that. And so, you know, and then of course, we spent a lot of time with him. He was the main witness, the main, main focus of this second trial. Is there any component of this jury verdict that's supposed to essentially punish the city or deter them from a punitive mm -hmm. standpoint? No. And in fact, you know, the city always argues whenever you get an emotional distress verdict against the city, they always argue that, oh, this is a punitive damage award, which isn't allowed against the city. You're not allowed to seek punitive damages against the city. And actually to protect and guard against that, we gave the jury an instruction that we weren't seeking punitive damages. We don't want punitive damages. You are not to punish the city. In my closing argument to the jurors, I told them point blank, we are not asking you to punish the city. We do not want you to punish the city. The purpose of your verdict is not to punish the city. The purpose of your verdict is to compensate Mr. Davis for the emotional distress that he suffered. And there's, there's two things I don't want to get lost here. One is I just want to make sure I understand this piece. He was basically, there were videos of police officers doing something that was wrong, some type of misconduct, et cetera. He'd look at the videos, it was cut and dry, and his, the chief would tell him, we can't sustain this. We want you to overturn it. And he was only doing this about what, 10% of the cases, Mr. That's Davis? Correct. And that, that still was too high of a percentage for this police chief. Yes. And to be clear, there wasn't video in every case. Sometimes it was medical records that would corroborate the very injury that somebody had complained that an officer had whacked them and excessive, used excessive force unnecessarily. And the officer said, well, he fell 
And so he would go and talk to the medical examiner and say, is this fall consistent with being hit or with a fall? And when the medical examiner would, or the medical personnel would tell him, no, that's a, that's a hit, you know, he would sustain the finding and they'd say, well, you should change it. You know, we just don't agree. And so he would say, well, that's not where the evidence points me. And I was an investigator and a detective and I spent my career, you know, gathering evidence and I'm, I'm going to go where the evidence takes me. So yes, even though his sustained finding rate was still quite low, that it was, it was too high for the new chief. And so he lost his job for trying to protect the citizens of the city of Chicago. So that, that always leads me to my second thing in these types of cases. He loses his job, what, 2014, 2015? 2015. It's 2021. He's gone through one jury trial. He's gone to a, an appeal, then a second jury trial, maybe another appeal. He's in his 60s. He's, I think you said he was, a, he was doing- Well, now he's 71. Now he's 71. He's been working for the city public service over 37 years. It may still take a couple more years for him to get what's owed to him. The two That's juries correct. have independently found should be given to him. That's correct. And this is where the city, I hope that as part of the city's efforts towards police reform that they, they talk a lot about, I hope that they will include looking at these police misconduct cases, whether they are excessive force cases or whistleblower cases, and start to meaningfully evaluate them. Because what I have seen in my experience and also read about in the news media myself, the city has spent hundreds of millions of dollars on police misconduct cases. The mayor's talked about it. The corporation council has talked about it. They have all said we need to rein in spending on these police misconduct cases, and yet they don't. And yet when it comes to defending the police department, it doesn't matter how much evidence is stacked against the officer. They will defend this officer with every last dime of taxpayer money as if it's their very life on the line. And it is, is confounding. It is confounding why they will refuse to meaningfully evaluate meritorious claims for settlement. And I totally understand that not all claims against the police or even the city are meritorious. And in fact, I, I would guess that a lot of them aren't. But I think that when you take the position that none of them are, and your knee jerk is to just defend, 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 admit no wrong, you know, never, ever, ever look at these things with a meaning through a meaningful lens. You're just breaching your fiduciary duty to the citizens, in my view. Except for when the mayor's re-election is on the line, right, and he doesn't want a really bad shooting to come out, and then then those settlements get quietly approved. You know, I mean, the Laquan McDonald shooting, you know, it was like a five million dollar payout that got paid out right before that election, if memory serves without any hearing, without any of that stuff. But other than that case, yeah, I mean, I even, not that I'm an expert by any stretch, but I did a few months of police misconduct very early in my career as an unpaid intern starting out and like, I, yeah, I don't remember them ever coming forward and saying, yeah, we really screwed up here. Let's make this right. You know, they fight it to the death every time. Yeah. So in, in my, in another case that my office tried in 2019 was another police whistleblower case against the city that back when my client was dumped out of her unit, which forced her into early retirement, all because she had the audacity to report another officer to internal affairs, we wrote a letter saying, hey, you guys screwed up. This, you, you, you punished the wrong person, punished the bad actor. And in fact, internal affairs sustained the misconduct against him. So why was my client who reported him being punished? I mean, that just didn't make sense. And so we, we didn't just knee jerk go out and sue. You know, we actually sent a letter to the city of Chicago's law department and said, hey, we have an idea. 
put our client back to work in the position that she loved and held for so long and did so well in, and this whole thing goes away. And if they had just put her back to work, that would have been a cost of $0 and zero cents to the taxpayers, but they refused to do that. And they refused for seven years, all offers of settlement. They literally offered $0 and zero cents on the eve after they lost, you know, motions to dismiss the case, motions to summarily dismiss the case after the close of discovery. They, you know, on the eve of trial, as you guys know, that's usually when at some point, somebody's going to say, well, let's at least try to settle the case. Zero dollars and zero cents. It was a four-week jury trial, and they, the jurors were allowed to ask questions throughout the trial. And it was very obvious that the jurors were very much going in our favor. They would, one juror even asked on like day three of trial, when is the city going to settle this case? <laughs> And we were like looking at them going, maybe we were right when we told you all along, you should really consider settling this case. And they still never made a single offer. I would send them letters throughout the litigation telling them, as you guys know, these civil rights cases are fee shifting. So one of the components of damages are that if we win the case, the city has to pay our legal fees. And the way in which the city litigates these cases, they drive up the legal fees so much. And so our fees are really, really high. And I would send the city letters at various points in the litigation saying, hey, here's what my fees are right now. I think we should talk about settlement. I would offer to do mediations. I would offer to do all kinds of stuff just to try to get them to look at this case. And I would tell them, I don't think the evidence is gonna go for you. I think that you're gonna lose this case. I think that the jury's gonna agree that she was punished because she reported another officer to internal affairs. And even after we won the trial and it was a verdict of about $1.9 million, I, I still sent the city a letter and I said, I am willing to sit down and talk with you. And I would like to invite your corporation counsel to attend the meeting because I had just read a news article where the corporation counsel himself was telling, I think it was the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin, that he wanted to rein in spending on police misconduct and on outside counsel fees. And in this case, the city had hired outside counsel that was paying by the hour. And so I said, look, I saw that you said this. Here's an opportunity. We, you know, we offered to settle the case before trial. You said no. You never made an offer. We did, in fact, win the trial. The jury came back with a very significant verdict. We're willing to talk about resolution even now. And we invite you to this meeting. No, still never did it. So they just you know, continued to drive up the legal fees with all kinds of post-trial -motion, post motion briefing. And it wasn't until the summer of 2020 that they finally asked us if we would settle the case and the case ended up being settled for 3.8 million dollars because it included the verdict as well as our fees and that didn't even in include the cost of what they had paid outside counsel which we had foia their fees and they were over 1.5 million dollars as well the last time we checked and we don't even have all their we didn't hadn't even collected all of their fees so i'm sure they were really higher than that so what the city could have settled that case in 2013 for $0.00 by putting my client back to work. And instead, it cost the taxpayers over $4.5 million easily. So having, having now taken at least, two, I'm sure there are more than that, but having taken these two cases from, and I know you walked into the first case, you know, it had been going on for a while, but you've now gone to verdict with the city of Chicago on, on police cases like this a couple of times. Having now dealt with them a couple of times, talking, taking into account everything you just said, why? Like, what is there something different in your experience or that you've gleaned from dealing with them um, 
that gives you a sense of why they act this way because you think about, oh, rational actor, rational actor. You just said it could have cost them nothing just to admit their mistake and move on with their day. Instead, they managed to take a zero cost outcome and turn it into what? Like between the fees to you and your client and to their outside counsel, over $5 million of taxpayer money that just didn't need, that just flat out didn't need to get spent. So, so I guess my question again is why? Like, do you have some insight into why they're acting this way? You know, that's the question I asked my opposing counsel in uh, the case um, from 2019 over and over again. Like, help me understand this. I don't understand it. As a taxpayer, I'm a, I'm aghast, right? Like, I don't want to keep paying this money, even if it does result in a nice verdict to my client and fees to me. I'd rather you guys give her a remedy that it's fair and just and, you know, let my firm move on to help the next person and she's happy to put it in the rearview mirror. Like, I don't know why they do this. It is confounding. And my, my law firm has sued the city before in other departments, you know, the Department of Aviation. Or, and I will say that in my experience, they have been more willing to settle in those departments. It's still the city. They still sort of, you know, wait until the last minute, but we have been able to resolve lawsuits against the city when it arises from a different department. I have found that the Chicago police department is uniquely resistant to settling. And I don't, I wish I knew the answer. The only thing that I can conclude is that the police department just refuses. And I don't know who the decision makers. I mean, I would think that the law department would just tell the police department, sorry, this is the evidence is not, you know, going to support your defense or it's, you know, weak. And, you know, we owe a fiduciary duty to taxpayers. We also owe a duty to let, to right wrongs, right? Like there's a moral, ethical and, and legal duty to right wrongs. And so I will just say, like, I think that the police department must just kick and scream and say, don't you dare ever admit that our officers did anything wrong because from what I've seen, they just can't seem to bring themselves to meaningfully evaluate these police misconduct or police miserable cases. And I do think that it sends the wrong message to the department and it gives them all a bad name when what we've seen is, you know, even when there's findings against officers from juries, they just still, they don't want to change their internal affairs finding. Their internal affairs finding will always be unfounded or un, not sustained, even though a jury came back. And one of the things that I learned in the trial from 2019 is that they never discipline these officers when these things happen. So I would, you know, be taking the testimony of these officers and saying after five complaints by the public for your misconduct or excessive force, did they discipline you? No, after 10, after 15, after 20, after 25, after 40, like literally you never even got so much as a written warning? Nope. How about after the city paid out big, big settlements in these police misconduct, excessive force cases filed against you? No discipline, no. How about when the jury came back and awarded a big verdict and found that in fact you had committed battery against a member of the public? Any discipline then? Nope. How about any retraining? Did anyone at any time during all of that history of complaints against you and jury verdict or whatever it is, did anyone from the police department ever say to you, maybe you should go to some retraining, maybe some de-escalation training? Not once. And that was stunning to learn. But they disciplined the whistleblowers. 
in both of yeah. Oh yeah. And very publicly, you know, it's, it's very, they have this habit of like, they'll dump you down to patrol. You'll, they'll take you out of a specialized unit or a nice job that you enjoyed and they'll dump you to patrol and, you know, often put you on midnights. It's kind of the same pattern over and over and over. So what everybody else sees, the, all the other officers see, Ooh, boy, I don't ever want to raise my hand and call out misconduct where I see it or report something because that's what will happen to me because it's very public. And yet at the same time, I mean, the law department in some ways, in my opinion, is very complicit in sort of covering up police misconduct because the more money they throw at it and the more that they say, you know, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil, they can do no wrong, no matter what the evidence shows, we will defend them to the end of time. You're basically sending the message to the rest of the police department. These are the guys that we prop up and stand by. And if you blow the whistle, you'll be punished. So I think that that's an aspect of police reform in this town that needs to be addressed, that it kind of permeates all the way through the way that they defend these lawsuits. And I hope that they will address it because it's, it's, it's bad for morale. It's bad for the officers who do want to come to work and protect and serve and who want to do right, which I'm sure are the vast majority of officers. You know, you don't go in to be a cop to say, oh, I want to beat people up. Most people really do want to protect and serve. And I feel badly for the men and women on our police department who get a bad reputation because of some of these officers. And it's really up to the leadership of the city to, to reverse course on that and to say enough is enough. And we want to support the right officers. Well, you think about like the cases that we see that are not, you know, against city of Chicago police officers, right? Against private employers or even against some public employers. And in no other line of work that I can think of, maybe except our former, but never mind. In no other line of work that I can think of, can you have that many sorts of not just infractions, but serious infractions? And we're not talking about tardies where they fire our client for showing up late one too many times, right? Or like being abrasive to a customer on the phone. We're talking about potential violence, death, catastrophic injury, traumatic injury, harm to the community, harm to the public trust, harm to the public finances, to taxpayer money. Like, and, and what we're seeing, right, is like all of that stuff can happen and there can be literally no consequence. You can cause the city to incur five to 10 million in legal fees and there will be potentially no consequence to you personally in your job, right? Like, I That's what I have seen. And that's what I find to be an area where we need reform very badly because like I said, it's, it's not only a breach of fiduciary duty, you know, it's spending taxpayer money that doesn't need to be spent. That money could be spent on the Chicago public school kids, right? I mean, imagine how much, you know, they would have loved to have the hundreds of millions of dollars that have been spent on police misconduct, but or yeah. Even spending it on the police department as opposed to right. spending it on legal fees. Right. Spending it on the training, spending it on the mental health resources, spending it on, you know, hiring. Yeah, compensation and, and hiring more officers so that you don't have to do forced overtime or whatever it is. Yeah, you're right. You know, giving more resources to other areas to have a better, more productive police department would be great. I would, I would support that as well. It's just very, very unfortunate that, you know, some of the patterns that I've seen and that we've all seen this city engage in that they've acknowledged time and again. Like I said, you know, many mayors have acknowledged that this city spends too much on police misconduct litigation. Many corporation councils have said the same thing. And yet I don't see the solution. And I, I don't want it 
to have, you know, more and more and more jury verdicts have to be the thing that teaches the city that this, at some point it's got to end. I just, and I don't see that that's happened in the past. It's not just, I'm not the only one suing the city on police misconduct cases. You know, many, many people are and, you know, getting lots and lots of verdicts. And it's just, you know, at some point, like, like I said, meaningfully evaluate these things. I actually had an idea um, what I, which I passed along to the city, which, which <laughs> I'm not sure that they'll ever implement, but I actually thought that they should have an independent review of lawyers outside of the city of Chicago's law department to evaluate these cases at various pressure points in a lawsuit when a case has been filed, when a case is at the end of discovery and or gets by summary judgment and on the eve of trial, or when there is a settlement demand somewhere in the middle of discovery where you know it can save the, the city money. And to look at these things, you know, maybe not every single case, but these some of these more meritorious cases and and just say, look, this is one I think you guys should really consider settling or making an offer. You know, the parties don't settlement, as you guys know, doesn't always work. They might make an offer that you reject and they might not get there. But I think that there has to be I, I think it would be helpful if there would be an outside panel to say, let's look at some of these police misconduct cases, because right now I don't see a solution sitting there anywhere. So I hope they'll consider it. So these cases typically take somewhere between five and 10 years, which leads me to a second why question. And you've kind of alluded to the answer already. And I think knowing you, I know the answer as well, but why do you take on these cases? Because I like justice <laughs> and I love my clients. I, I really do feel like it's trying to be part of the solution, right? There's a problem. And this is both, I'm able to help people who need help, who didn't ask to be punished for doing the right thing. It's that, that the injustice that occurs there offends my own sense of, you know, what's right and wrong. And I, I know I can use my skill and my law degree to help those people. But at the same time, I am hopeful that it will help the community at large and that you know, each one of us does our part. And for me, my part is using my profession to help advance that cause of justice and to fix that problem that does exist in our city. So it is a headache to sue the city and it's aggravating because it's, you know, they can be so unreasonable so much uh, in discovery and in refusing to settle. It's, it's not, you know, it always as easy as doing private corporations that like to more meaningfully evaluate these things and cut their losses when they see them. But at the end of the day, it is very rewarding when we do achieve justice for not just our clients, but for the police department as a whole, because I think it does make them a better department to know that, you know, at some point you will be held accountable. And if it has to be by 12 jurors, it has to be by 12 jurors. Megan, is there anything you'd like to plug knowing that we're going to get to one of your other real important hobby horses in just a moment? The only thing that I would like to plug is the city itself. Given my comments today about police misconduct and what I see as a dysfunctional manner in which the city deals with these cases and, and the reform, it may sound like I hate the city of Chicago, but I, I really love the city of Chicago. I've always loved the city of Chicago. And, you know, I just think that we can do much better in many respects, but this is still a great town and you know police misconduct and race issues definitely need to be addressed in this town and like i said i think we can all do our part whether it's you know using your profession whether it's picking up trash on the beach whether it's 
going to a protest or a school board meeting and making your voice known, like all of those ways we can all do our part to make this city better. But while we're doing that and recognizing the flaws of the city, I think we have to recognize the amazing city that we live in. I mean, where else do you live on a lake that looks like an ocean that on some days when the sun is shining on that beautiful lake looks like the Caribbean and you have world-class museums, world-class restaurants, major sports teams right downtown. I remember one day I went to Millennium Park Yoga on a Saturday morning with my girlfriend and, you know, I love doing that. And then I took my kids to the Air and Water show on North Avenue Beach. And then my husband and I went to Millennium Park to end our day and listen to the Grant Park Orchestra and also watch the fireworks at the end of the concert. Every single one of those activities was free and amazing. And so where else can you get that? Like this is such a great town and it's beautiful and it's got so much to offer. And again, I just wanna be part of that solution to always make it better. And I want everyone to love Chicago as much as I love Chicago because it's worthy of our love. So I'm gonna plug the city of Chicago. Well, that's also a perfect segue for one of our favorite segments. We try to do a shout out at the end of each episode. So it can be a person, could be a city, it can be a politician, it could be a book, it could be a TV show, just something to end our episodes on a positive note. So what is What's my shout out? out? What is your shout out? My shout out is John Madden. He's my husband and my law partner. And he is, I don't know, he, he's, he's half the driving force of this firm and keeps me going. And on those low moments where I'm frustrated and I feel like, oh, I'm exhausted by all of this. He's the one who says, you know, you're my little Irish Teffy and you got to keep going because that's what you do. And he is every bit as amazing as any other lawyer in town he's also a lawyer obviously he's my partner (laughs) so he's a rock star and he's my shout out that's awesome megan well thank you so much for joining us we can hear the sweet sirens of the city of chicago and one of your two backgrounds so there we go megan thank you no you're great uh and i enjoy the real stuff there's there's a version of an episode that exists somewhere that i'm hoping never sees the light of day where you see you can't see, but Amit and Catherine Simmons-Gill could see the terrified look on my face as my dog, my wife and my child were all going berserk at the same time in the midst of the episode. And I just went, I ha- guys, I gotta go. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get out of here. So, so sorry. That happened. You know, one, one thing we forgot to ask you, how do we find you? Yes. Where our listeners find you? Oh, I don't know, my website? Is that what you want me to give? Yes, and we'll put it in the show notes. Oh, okay. Well, my website is, www.ompc-law.com. Okay. Thank you to Megan O'Malley and please subscribe and share. Thank you. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.